0: John, what do you even know about vinyl? Come on, I, know,
1: I I used vinyl in a non-ironic way when it was all we had. That's what I know about vinyl.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see how it is. Did you Did you use your uh, record player in your car? What What was that like? A Cadillac or something had had <laughs> some sort of vinyl set up inside one of their cars. It was the most preposterous thing I've ever seen. See, really,
1: really great anti-skip protection. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. You balance it on the back of a turtle. I think I saw it on the Flintstones.
2: Oh my uh, god. Goodness. No, like I, I don't. I don't have any nostalgia for technologies. That we had to use when we were young, just because that's all there was. Like, I, I don't. I mean, you know, old video game consoles. I like that. But that, that's different. I have no nostalgia for like floppy disks or cassettes or like VHS tapes. Like, any like because those, those all sucked. Like, they they were terrible.
0: Yeah, and the same thing with vinyl. My favorite is when, and we've spoken about this several times on the show. Um, but when you would have you would have your Discman or equivalent, and you had to choose do you want to listen to music for an impossibly short amount of time, but have it not skip? Or do you want to listen to your music for a regularly short amount of time, but every time you even glance at your portable CD player, it skips. And this is the choice that <laughs> us olds had to make at the time, because, you know, you would have a portable CD player and it would you either have a rechargeable battery or perhaps, you know, several double A's would have you. Um, But, it was such a fragile experience that if you jostled it in the littlest way, it would skip. And so what CD players ended up doing is they had anti-skip protection and jump in when you're ready, boys. But my understanding is it would it would run the CD at faster than one x and have a little bit of buffer in memory. So if it detected a skip, it would empty the buffer. And hopefully by the time the buffer was emptied, the CD was playing and picking up where it left off, but because of that, because it was running even faster than normal, it would absolutely murder your battery. And it was, and it was loud. It was like carrying a fan in your hands. I'm sure you loved this, John. It was your <laughs> it was your favorite thing in the whole wide world, but uh, but it was it was such a crummy choice. You know, do you want to listen to uninterrupted music for I don't know maybe the length of one CD, or do you want to maybe get two CD CD's worth of listen listening time and every other just every other Every other second, you looked, it would skip, and it was the most annoying thing in the world.
2: Oh, to me, having owned 2 Discmen, Discmans—one before that transition and one after—oh, yeah, mm-hmm. it's no contest. Like, yeah. you, you want the skip protection at any cost because yep. the skip, like, I mean, so like the first time when I first got a Discman, um, I later, I soon afterwards got my first car in college, and and it didn't have a CD player, and, but it did have one of those like double high gaps under the radio. That's like, it was like a double din height, but there was, wasn't anything installed. There So it was just one of those like big black, like empty cubbies there. Yep. And a discman could fit in the, in that double din empty cubby with a bunch of felt around it. So my solution <laughs> was to actually <laughs> just like, I had like this big felt pocket that I made <laughs> with black felt that, you know, I, I mean, again, the, if you're picturing something like sewn or anything, no, go rougher than that just like maybe a yard of black felt folded up a bunch of times into an approximate pocket shape shoved into this din socket so that my Discman could be nestled inside of it. And that actually did help quite a lot. (laughs) Um, It wasn't perfect, you know, because I still lived in the East. And so we had, you know, weather and weathered roads. And so, you know, the roads are terrible, full of bumps. And and it it wasn't always good. But that did buy me a little bit of time with my non- Anti skip men uh, and you're exactly right about how they work. They just they had a read ahead buffer, basically. The original ones were like two or three seconds, and eventually, by the end of men's useful lifetime, it was like sixty second buffers. Oh god, that, it, it was so much better. Even though, like, yeah, it would rev, it would you know murder the battery faster because it was doing much more work, and it was. You know, you would hear like when it skipped, you would hear it kind of reseeking, like realign. You'd hear like <laughs> you'd hear like realign the laser and going back and spinning down, spinning up. Like you would hear all that going on, but all of that was way better than having your music actually skip in the middle of it every time you had a bump. So mm-hmm. that was that was worth it for sure. Let's take a moment to uh recognize
1: the casual sexism of Walkman and Discman uh, uh, and, and be glad that Steve Jobs, I think it was Steve Jobs, didn't get his way to call the iMac the Mac Man. Oh yeah! Oh, that's right.
0: I've forgotten about. Remember that.
1: Remember that that story? It's like that's what you want. Yeah, I mean, someone did get away with MacBook, which is not great, but at least it doesn't have sexist overtones. Um, anyway, I think you two, your priorities were different than mine uh, when it came There's to portable music. <laughs> uh, yeah, I had uh, I had a I what I thought was a reasonably fancy. I think it was Panasonic a uh, portable CD player, and I'm not sure I ever used it on the go. It's like, well, what's the point of having a portable CD player? Well, The point of it for me was like it was literally the only thing I owned that could play <laughs> CDs, so there's a big point to it. So then I could buy CDs and listen to them, but it wasn't so much for the portableness. I think it was probably just because it was like the cheapest thing I could buy because I didn't have like a stereo to connect a quote-unquote real CD player from, but if you buy just this one thing, you can hook headphones up to it. But every portable application, I was still heavily wed to cassettes, mostly because I'd made so many cassettes of different mixes like i was really i really wanted to essentially have my playlists right and you couldn't do that with cds or i couldn't do that with cds at least not at that point um i don't think cd burners had been invented yet um so all i had was you know my choice was well, you can bring this thing and a bunch of felt i guess into your car uh and and deal with (laughs) skipping and by the way i don't think mine had any skip protection to speak of or i had like a literal zippered nylon uh you know cases filled with mixed cassettes of all my music and all my quote-unquote playlists and that's what i played in the car and cassettes didn't skip
0: well that's fair that's fair but you also had to rewind them and seeking or no, excuse me skipping was impossible seeking i guess was fine other than really i mean that's
1: part of the skill you develop as a child of the 70s to know how far to fast forward and rewind on various devices to exactly nail the end of the song
0: <laughs> yeah, well, and that's the thing is that at least with a, with a record, you can visually see the difference while between, you're driving. Yeah, well, no, of course, not while you're driving, but when you're at home, you can see the difference. And yeah, uh, oh man, we're all so old. See, see, kids, see, this is what you don't have to worry about. Like, I remember, and I think we were just talking about this a few weeks back, that I had a. Shoot, it was like a tish, it was a Toshiba Pocket PC that I got a one gigabyte micro drive for. So it was you know compact flash, but it had a spinning hard disk within it. Same thing that ended up in the uh, iPod, and and I had a one gig micro drive in it, and I had you know a couple hundred songs, uh, uh, you know MP3s on there, and I effectively had the world's crappiest iPod, and I thought I was the coolest kid in the world.
2: It's way better than my carputer that I controlled Winamp from a gamepad.
0: Oh, that's right. I had forgotten you had a carputer. Which which car was this in? <laughs> he,
2: he he has one now too. Sometimes it reboots. <laughs> <laughs> nice. No, this was this was uh, that same car, and and uh, it was <laughs> this was the one where I I had all my old parts for my Pentium 2 after I would upgraded to a Pentium 3, and uh, I had everything except a case to make a new computer. I wasn't about to just go buy a new case for all these old parts, and that would be a waste of money. I did have a Rubbermaid tub and a Dremel.
0: Oh, that's right, that's right.
2: So, <laughs> yes. So I, I made a whole, like, Windows in, it, Windows PC with my Pentium 2 slotted processor. <laughs> and... Uh, installed Winamp and ran it headless in my car because, you know, it didn't have, like, displays or anything that were cheap and available, and it wasn't enough of a hacker to make, like, a little LCD thing. Uh, so I just had it, like, auto-boot Windows setting Winamp as the shell in Windows so it would automatically launch it. <laughs> and, I, and I had a gamepad, and I had some kind of software running that would that would map gamepad buttons to Winamp's keyboard shortcuts. And it worked okay, with a couple of downsides, uh, the biggest being that I had to, like, boot the computer up so I'd get into the car, and then, like, you know, two and a half minutes later, I'd be able to play music. Oh,
1: you were living in the future, because when cars cars first started to get their own sort of infotainment <laughs> systems, that was a typical boot time. Yeah. Oh, well,
0: you know, I, I adore Aaron's car. I really, really do. It's a 2017 Volvo XC90, and it has two critical faults. Number one... The windows, the power windows are so slow, I think I could roll them up with a crank better. Kids, if you don't know what I'm talking about, ask your parents. And secondly, the boot time for the infotainment can be measured in calendar years. It is <laughs> atrocious how long it takes to boot. Now, the good news is I never have to reboot it as I'm driving down the road. So I'm still, go- I've got one on you, Marco, but nonetheless, it takes forever to boot and it drives me bananas.
2: Yeah. Well, at least it doesn't have the other two problems that mine had, which is that uh, sometimes. Something would happen in the Windows installation. Maybe something was showing a dialog box. Who knows? But it would just stop working, like in the middle of driving. Oh, cool. So I would have to, like you know, unplug it, <laughs> plug it back in. <laughs> and then the the final problem was that a Rubbermaid tub is not super well made as a rugged computer enclosure. Neither is whatever consumer-level motherboard I had for my Pentium 2 or the Pentium 2 itself uh, because it's a giant slot sitting on a very thin, you know, board, uh, and the slot has, a, has, you know, the whole CPU in that big, like, slot case plus the giant heatsink hanging off the back of it. So one time I hit a speed bump and the CPU fell out of the slot and never worked again. <laughs> While it was on, of course. Um, so that, I'm sure that didn't help things. Should have got the hot plug CPU. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Just yank that CPU out, put a new one in. No problem. I
0: feel like this really is just your your future as a Tesla owner coming, <laughs> coming for you 20 <laughs> years ago. But, uh, so coincidentally, I uh, was at my alma mater this past weekend, um, which is the first time I've been to Virginia Tech in probably a decade plus. And I don't know if you guys ever go to your old stomping grounds. I would assume of the three of us, it's most likely that John would, because I think you're geographically closest to it. But... It is a eerie experience going to your your former, you know, college or university and seeing after 10 to 20 years how much it has changed. And a lot of it looked very much as I remember, but holy cow, quite a bit of it looked quite a bit different. And if you'll permit me to tell you the most boring old man, or excuse me, embarrassing old man story in the world. So we were there for my uh, brother-in-law's bachelor party, and it was, it, it was a handful of us, and we decided on Saturday night to go to a, a bar in Blacksburg that has a, you know, kind of patio-y area. And we were going to go and get a couple of, you know, have a few drinks and then, and then move on with our night. And so I obviously have two kids. Uh, the, one of the other guys there has two kids. And, you know, my brother-in-law doesn't have any. But he he tends to go to bed early, like as though he has kids. And so we go out impossibly late and go to go to this bar. And we arrive at the bar at this ungodly late hour, and there was a waitress, because the bar has, you know, like a restaurant beneath it, and the waitress sees us trying to go uh, up to up the upstairs of this bar, and she says, oh, no, 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 it doesn't open until 8. I have never felt older in my entire goddamn <laughs> life than being turned away from opening the college bar at seven thirty at night on a Saturday night. Because I hear it is I'm thinking there it's not even it's not even registering to me that this stupid bar wouldn't be open. And yeah, it turns out it won't even open till eight. And I felt so old. I they
1: are gonna say, Oh, you're looking for your children? Yeah, <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> wouldn't surprise me. But yeah, I've never felt older in my entire life, and I told Erin this story, and I think she's still laughing three days later.
2: Well, and and right. to me, like you know, because we've we've certainly crossed this age threshold as well. Um, because we've we've reached the point where like not only do we shamelessly eat early, uh, but mm-hmm. I don't even want to stay out late. Like, even if it was an option to me, I wouldn't take it. I I actually would actively avoid any place that opens at 8 or 10 or 1 in the morning or whatever like and part of this is cuz i like i've never been in the club scene i know that's like a big thing in clubbing that the clubs don't even open till like 1 in the morning or whatever i couldn't possibly think of anything i want to do less than go, than go to something like that <laughs> i am perfectly happy to be the old boring dad even though i'm not even that old but still like just to be the boring dad to want to go out to dinner at six o'clock at night and to want to be home before eight.
0: <laughs> yep. Oh God, it's so bad. Uh, I wish I was young. and, and well, I, I don't know if I was ever interesting, but I kind of wish I was young again. But, yeah, but yet at the same token, I, I don't miss those days in a lot of ways. And, and it's nice to, not ha- you know, to have more than $5 to scrape together. There are advantages to not being 21 anymore, but whew, I've never felt older in my life.
2: I do still miss being able to eat a cheesesteak at ten o'clock at night and not have serious ramifications.
0: Amen to that. Golly. I you know, so my freshman year I wasn't old enough to drink and I and I didn't drink. Um, and I didn't have it was I was a nerd and I had nerdy friends. We didn't have much to do. So It was not unusual on a Saturday night to leave the dorms at like midnight and get in one one of our cars and drive 45 minutes to Roanoke, Virginia, which was like the nearest thing that vaguely resembled a city. And get Krispy Kreme donuts at midnight, one o'clock in the morning and then drive back because we could (laughs) and because we had nothing better to do. So I would eat like two or three Krispy Kremes at like one in the morning and then pass out for eight hours. I'm stone sober, mind you, and then pass out for eight hours, wake up right as rain. If I had two or three Krispy Kremes at one o'clock in the morning now, I would still be paying for it three days later. Oh, yeah, me too. All right, let's move on. Uh, Tell me, uh, John, you know how I know you're old because you want a, a reload button on your Safari toolbar
1: is an important feature apparently apple agrees uh again we're talking about <laughs> safari on the mac here um in the monterey uh beta 2 not the well i don't know the public beta Public beta just came out but this is the developer beta number two uh, when you go to customize toolbar there is now uh, an option to drag a reload button up onto your toolbar as there always should have been a couple of caveats number one a reload button is backwards apple's reload button goes counterclockwise kind of like the one on ios has for a while i think instead of clockwise, as it should properly go on a Mac and in any right-thinking person's uh, conception of a reload button. Why? Uh, um. This was There was a, quite a, a, a spirited, let's say, debate on Twitter amongst <laughs> people who are not me about this, but just to <laughs> let everybody know. The reason it goes clockwise, I mean, surprisingly, no one wanted to debate this premise. Everyone accepted this premise and debated other things. But I, I feel like the, the, the way to win this argument in the incorrect way is to chip at the premise that clockwise means forward in time but we just all accept that because we're like oh clocks clocks go forward clockwise means forward in time everyone accepted that as a premise and then just spent the time arguing about whether reloading the page is properly represented by an arrow going forward in time or backwards in time the obvious answer is yes forward in time is the correct direction that's why the reload button should be a clockwise pointing circle why does make apple make it go backwards i don't know who knows why Apple does the things they do. Um, <laughs> the other thing about this reload button that Apple added uh, is that it is smaller than most people would have expected. Smaller than I expected. It's smaller than my reload button. It's so small, in fact, that the line weight doesn't even match the forward and back, you know, Chevron. Oh, that's true. Things. It's very odd. Very. And it's also not particularly well aligned. Um, but anyway, this is just beta two. like this thing. This little glyph could change, I'm sure, uh, to be thicker, bigger, pointing the right direction. Who knows? Either way, I'm glad it's there. And the final thing is, one of the things that I dealt with with my reload button extension, which you think would have no actual features because it literally does one thing, uh, I've struggled with Apple's clamping down of security on extensions uh, combined with their limited extension API because properly what a reload button should do is be dimmed or grayed out or disabled when there is no page to reload. Let's say you open a new tab on like an empty page or whatever, if that's your settings, the reload button shouldn't be active. There's nothing to reload right uh, but the only api apple has ever offered for safari extensions to do that was to sort of check the content of the page in some way like you have to basically have access to the page content the re- i didn't want access to the page content i don't want to know what page you're on all i want to know is the answer to this question is a page loaded in this tab yes or no i just needed a boolean but apple did not provide that api instead apple provided an api to say okay well if you want to know if there's a page loaded you have to request access to the page. So for a while, my reload button was like, this extension will see all the web pages you visit, which is super creepy. And eventually I just gave up on that and said, okay, look, I can't I can't do the disabled state because it's too creepy to ask, to see, you know, quote-unquote ask to see everyone's pages. Like again, I'm not doing anything with the information. I'm literally treating it as a boolean in the code just to know whether the thing should be disabled. So for years now, my reload button has not dimmed when there is nothing to reload. Apple adds a reload button to the actual native Safari Doesn't dim when there's no page loaded. It's like you're in the actual code. You have the source code to Safari, Apple, please. Uh, So next beta, aside from, uh, I would say that the important thing to do is to make this glyph bigger. I don't really care that much about the direction. It'll be fine. Again, no one notices that it's been backwards on iOS for ages. Like it's really not that big of a deal. Um, But not having it be
2: disabled, that seems not great. But anyway, this is
1: beta two. I give them a few more betas to work out the Safari reload button. Clearly the most important feature in Monterey.
2: See, I'm actually I'm very heartened. Did we figure out if heartened is a word? The opposite of disheartened. It, don't, it is. It is actually a word. Okay, good. I've, <laughs> I'm very heartened to see their sloppy, rushed attempt to get a reload button in here. Because what this means, even though yeah, it's you know the line weight doesn't match and it's backwards and everything, yeah, I'm sure they will get to that. What this means is that I'm not the only person who hates the new Safari UI. <laughs> what this means, if they made like a a like visible ui change in beta 2 i think this means they're feeling a bit of heat on the safari ui redesign which was i think quite radical on both the mac and ios and iphone especially um, in different ways both of which i despise (laughs) but I'm, i'm glad that they're adjusting things because this shows that they have gotten that feedback and that they are willing to change the ui now this is a small change but maybe they maybe they'll be willing to make bigger changes with you know throughout the summer you know as the beta cycle progresses. So I'm happy to see that they are that that other people have similar opinions maybe as I do and on this and that Apple is receiving apparently enough of that feedback so much so that they are kind of rushing these changes to the beta. So what I'm hoping is that by the time we get to you know September, October, whenever Monterey is released, and, and I guess whenever iOS 15 is released, I hope that a, a better overall design can be reached. Mm, I'd see this as some kind of like mild
1: concession of like, well, we're not going to change the fundamental nature of this UI, but I know some people wanted a reload button. So here, everything's fixed now. You got a reload. Honestly, the reload button is not the problem with the new Safari UI on the Mac. I don't, I still don't quite know what their appetite is for the bigger problem which is you know how tabs are handled and everything related but I, yeah you know i'm glad to see some change there as well and by the way i just looked on ios 14 the reload button is turning the right direction maybe i was thinking of 15 where it was backwards or only on the ipad i don't recall i'm sorry my recollection for a reload button direction probably because i have reload button blindness because i don't like to even look at that one that's in the address bar because it's in the <laughs> wrong place but on ios <laughs> you don't really have a toolbar so what can you do
2: i can confirm that reload on the on ios 15 beta 2 points forward okay clockwise
0: you know it's funny you bring up the the betas because I have only barely used it on iOS, uh, but it's because I have it on a test device that I'm not using that much. But I am using it quite a bit on my iPad, which which is running the beta as well. And I kind of like the idea of the whole tab group thing, or do they call it, where you can have like different work sessions, if you will, with you know different groups of tabs. And I don't mind the sidebar that manages that. However, the you know the general day to day tab interface, if you will. In the, in the dancing of the URL bar, do not like. I don't I don't mind it on iOS, but again, I've barely used it there. But on iPad OS, do not want. And I can only imagine I would feel even more angry about it on on Mac OS. I am not digging it in either of those places.
2: Yeah, honestly, I, I think it's worse on the iPhone because first of all, it's a bigger change on the iPhone, and I think it's I, I think of all of these, I think the iPhone UI is the one that is the worst. <laughs> but, well, and, but, uh, maybe but like that's seriously like i i would have installed the beta on my phone already but i'm still using a second phone like just toying around with it because mostly because of safari like because i i i really need to start testing some 15 features on my main phone so i really do need to install it like probably this week or next week but i don't want to because iphone safari is so bad (laughs) it's like that oh that ui is such a mess i hate looking at it i hate using it it's so clunky and Every time I use my, my phone now that, that still has 14 on it, and I use
0: Safari, I'm just like, ah, oh, it just works. It's normal.
2: <laughs> it's like, please, I don't want to get rid of it. I don't want to give it up.
0: Well, it's funny you say that because, again, I've only used it briefly, and maybe if I used it more, I would change my tune. But sitting here now, I liked it on the iPhone because I like having the address bar down low, although it dancing about I also didn't tremendously care for. And I did really like the... The affordance for swapping between tabs and like the whole tab management setup. uh, I liked all of that quite a bit. And that's why I think I give it a pass on iOS. But none of that is critical on iPad or Mac. And so all you're doing on iPad and Mac is making the user interface less predictable, less consistent, and less intuitive. None of which I consider good things.
1: Yeah. Speaking of Safari and the Mac, I spent way too long fighting with. It's handling of the various tiny icons that represent your websites. Some people will call them fave icons, but uh, it's it's way more complicated than that because Apple. um, And as far as I can tell, after banging my head against it for a while, Safari uh, on uh, Monterey does some kind of smart, quote-unquote smart choice when it displays (laughs) the little icon for your website in, in the various tabs in certain scenarios because I was like, doing an A-B comparison between my website and dpreview.com, which I just happened to have open another tab. I'm like, how are they getting you know, transparency in their icon in this scenario, and I can't. And I think it's like, it decides that the icon is either predominantly light or predominantly dark and puts it on a background in certain scenarios, which... For a while before this occurred to me, I'm like, what is going on? Because I was like literally copying like the file format size and everything from DP review, you know, and clearing all my caches, which is very difficult to do to delete like the all the icon caches in Safari and, you know, doing all the things that you could do to actually make it uh, reflect your changes. And I just, I made my, you know, local incarnation of my website exactly match DP review. The only difference was like the content of the picture and there is displayed in the way I wanted with the transparent background in mind, insisted putting it on like a white background and a round rec or something. So I don't know. I kind of give up on that. I really wish Apple would uh, update their guidance on how to get your little icons to display in a reasonable way. But I have a feeling based on the design of Safari for Monterey that being able to control how your website is represented in the UI of Safari is not really a thing that web developers are ever going to have complete control over again, because Apple kind of decides. You can give hints, you can suggest things, but in the end, we'll decide how best to display stuff because we have this challenge, this challenging UI where your thing may not be legible based on the ever-changing background and you know all that other stuff, so that's kind of disappointing but anyway i did update i did end up updating my fav icons on on my website in an absurd way where now there's like every possible format and size that i think is reasonable (laughs) is available and still it doesn't display correctly but
0: oh so you feel like an ios developer then
1: yeah so i eventually (laughs) just gave up for now
0: All right, we should probably move to the second item of (laughs) follow-up, the HTTP strict transport security. Uh, So is this what we were talking about with, like, the whitelist last week? Where is this coming from?
1: Yeah, so this is... uh This is everybody's guess, and I agree with them, although I don't actually have this confirmed from any Apple source, but I didn't see any contradiction. Uh, The question last week was, you know, is some Apple copy on an Apple webpage is like, uh, Safari will automatically redirect to HTTPS for sites that are known to support it. Remember that? Because people were reporting, hey, the new Safari always redirects to HTTPS. That's awesome. But then I tried it, and it didn't redirect on my site, and so we found that copy that said it redirects for known sites. Like, what do they mean by known sites? Surely every site is known to someone. (laughs) <laughs> right, known to support HTTPS, right? Uh, and it didn't even occur to me to uh, think of uh, its abbreviated HSTS, which is a thing that I knew about long ago but had long since forgotten. Um, but anyway, I'm pretty sure that's what it is. And so, what it is, we'll link to the Wikipedia page, but it basically, it's a way for your web server website to tell web browsers uh, hey, next time you talk to this website, it's safe to just talk HTTPS with us from the start. Um, And it's it's communicated through an HTTP header uh, that tells the clients, uh, you know, HTTP header on your on an HTTPS request that tells them you can safely just talk to this server with HTTPS uh, for the next insert amount of time. Um, And there's also a bunch of other requirements uh, that that go along with that. Uh, What is the website? HTTPS. Uh, HSTSpreload.org is a website that will describe to you what you need to do to sort of comply with all this stuff um and if you comply to it uh, comply with all this stuff you can apparently get on a preload list which my vague understanding is that web browsers and other things in the world will now you will be on this known list like this list of sites that are known to support https um I guess it either ships with web browsers or they look it up. But anyway, that's how you get on the list. So first of all, you can comply with this without being on the preload list. You can just comply with it on your website, send the header, and compliant browsers, which is most of them, will, when they talk HTTPS to your website, even once, they will see the header and say, oh, this site is telling me for the next year, anytime I talk to, you know, example.com, it's just safe for me to just do HTTPS from the get-go, right? Um, And I thought this was interesting I have for the longest time stubbornly uh, refused to redirect everyone to HTTPS and just supported both protocols, much to the uh, consternation of many, 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 many people who constantly tell me on
2: Twitter, Mm -hmm. your
1: site doesn't support HTTPS, it's insecure.
2: (laughs) (sighs) Anyway. Your pasta recipe is going to hack everyone's bank accounts. Right. Like, my site's insecure.
1: Um, All right. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um but i was so curious about this standard and how it worked uh that i decided i'm going to try to do it on my website and of course it involved way more than you think it does because the requirements are like oh and by the way your cert needs to also cover triple dot your domain name I'm like triple w what decade is this because i hadn't put triple w dot co in my ssl cert because why would i like again what decade why wouldn't you <laughs> because come on triple w yes why don't i, mm. why don't I just spell out world wide web it's it's terrible. No. I just like my URL to be hypercritical.co with no triple W on the front. Anyway. Yeah, but, you,
2: but you should you should accept so okay. Even on my sites where I don't use the triple W I still accept those requests, and I simply redirect them to the correct address. Well,
1: it's, that's, that's, I, don't, it's not a, I don't do that. That's not what I want my domain name to be. It's not. But anyway, HSTS <laughs> requires it. I mean, it resolved, and it would work, and it would redirect you, but, uh, but I didn't have the SSL cert for it, because no one should ever be typing W. Right? right, but that means that it can't redirect you with HTTPS. Right. Well, then, you know, so anyway, I had to add it to my cert, so I did that you know, had to reissue, get a new cert, reissue it. It didn't cost any money. It was just a SSL hassle. Um, and then it, it set the headers and, you know, get everything all configured correctly. And then finally the site was satisfied and I submitted it. And I guess now I'm signed up for at least a year of having an HTTPS only site. I just want to see if I actually get on the preload list. Part of the standard is that if you stop complying with the standard, like say if I you know, stopped supporting the triple W. If you stop complying with the list of requirements at any point, then you're off the list. Like the browsers will just say, Oh, I give up and I'll just go back to, you know, the old way. So I don't, it's not that much of a commitment, but basically I've signed up for a year to be HTTPS only on my website that I only update once a year.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I I actually, I should have piped up about this last week. I, I knew about HSTS. Um, and I've been using it on Overcast since I think the beginning of Overcast um because i've always had like pretty strict ssl stuff and overcache because like when i made the whole web thing in 2014 and 2013 like that was late enough in in history that i'm like oh well wh- if i'm doing this from scratch i might as well make it as secure as possible
1: yeah and and to be clear like that's that's the right choice for something with actual security like you have actual user data travel you know like it's like there's a, if you're making an actual web application you should absolutely do this you should not accept plain http you should use https everywhere or whatever but if you have a, a blog that you
2: post on once a year where you just write a paragraph of text, like, I don't think it's super essential. Anyway, continue. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I even use I even use um, content security policy also on Overcast, which basically makes it effectively impossible for any kind of user-entered content to do things like JavaScript injection and stuff like that, even if I somehow mess up my, my server-side filtering of that. Um, but anyway... I, what I didn't know about was the preload list. So this is two different things. HSTS is the browser header where any website can say, only visit me over HTTPS in its response. So, you know, and the browser keeps keeps like a local database of that, you know, with that with that age threshold. Um, but I didn't know about the HSTS preload list. And and I knew that Chrome ha- had been doing this for like known big sites like, you know, apple.com, you know, bankofamerica.com. Like I'm sure, you know, a lot of stuff like that. Um, but I didn't know that that there was a way for anybody to just submit a site to it. So that's pretty cool. So yeah, hstspreload.org and you can do that. And I, I looked at it for overcast. Um, I, I think I just about qualify. I would just have to do, um, I, I added the include subdomains thing, um, because I I hadn't ever done that before. And I wanted to run that for a little while just to make sure that nothing weird breaks that I wasn't, that I had forgotten about. Um, and then I'm probably going to add it to the preload after that.
1: Uh, and just to save, I'm not going to save myself. It's probably too late. But
2: try to, to try to save myself a, a flood
1: of feedback. And just to be clear for all the listeners, if you're wondering, like, what's what's the danger in running a website without HTTPS? Since HTTP is just plain text, anyone can make your website look like anything because it is trivial to intercept it and totally change the content. So if you're worried about someone, you know, changing the content on your website to make it look like you're a terrible person or something, um, use HTTPS because it is harder to do that. Um, that's why people say that even if you have no security and you're not a web application and you don't have, you know, it doesn't, you don't have anything that you care about security doing plain HTTP basically makes it so that anyone in between you and the person trying to read your website can make it look like your website says whatever they want because it's plain text. Um, and if you read, uh, I think Dave Weiner had a big thing on this, but a lot of the sort of old school internet people say, yes, it's plain text, but that's kind of the beauty of it. Uh that it should still be accessible through plain text uh, security be damned just because it is a, a more accessible media without requiring SSL everywhere and so on and so forth. I'm not sure I entirely buy that argument, but like I, you know, what, what I'm saying with the supporting HTTP is that I do want people without, without HTTPS to be able to do it. Say someone's, you know, booted into, you know, system seven or something, or I don't know, like Netscape 1.0, where it doesn't support modern TLS standard. They still should, I still want them to be able to pull up my website because it's just got text on it. Um, and I'm willing to uh, you know, suffer if someone decides to man in the middle of my website and change everything about it, because I can always say to that person, if they say, hey, this website says you're a terrible person, I could say, try HTTPS. Does it still say the same thing? Uh, but so far, that hasn't happened. So you can choose what you want to do on your website, but apparently what I've chosen to do on mine is for the next year to be HTTPS only. So you're welcome.
0: I love the devout <laughs> hatred of... Triple W or WWW or what have you. And yet your your insistence on supporting HTTP. So,
1: totally different things. The Triple W is like saying, mm-hmm. well, you can name your kid whatever you want, but we're going to put Triple W on the front.
0: No, <laughs> no.
1: I picked the domain name for my website. <laughs> oh my God. Well, but everyone it's else totally supports the Triple thing. W. No. It's exactly. It looks ugly. It's not nice. My domain name is really long to begin with. I don't want Triple W on, on my website. And there are many other parts of DNS that make it probably not a good idea to make your top level domain your website like there are limitations there um i understand that i'm just i'm, I'm willing to deal with them to have a nicer word in the url bar and yes i know half the web browsers hide the triple w anyway, so it's, it's basically invisible uh i'm you know i was gonna say i'm still not willing to give up on that one but i basically just did i guess so anyway <laughs> don't use triple w when you link to me i'll start sending you to random bad pages or giving you 500 errors
0: <laughs> it's 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 more symmetrical because you have to have the .co or .com in my case. So it's it's three on one side, three on the other.
1: Well, I've got two on one side and nothing on the other and a big bunch of everything in the middle.
0: I'll do www.worldwide.hypercritical.co. Worldwide, always on. <laughs> All right, iOS 15, <laughs> always on worldwide. iOS 15 can adjust more than just text size. Turns out if you go into settings, accessibility, and perhaps settings, there's a whole cornucopia of things you can do in there.
1: Yeah, and you can add apps, like as an interface to say, add an app you want to customize something about. You can customize the text size, the button shapes, transparency, contrast, uh, you know, all or reduce motion even. Tons of stuff that you can do per app. So uh, if you didn't know that was there and there's some app that you'd like to tweak something about, check it out in iOS 15.
0: Uh, Abel DeMose writes, I mostly agree with Marco on Apple relaxing IAP rules, but I think Marco has left out why Apple values its IAP earnings as much as it does. Relaxations on IAP rules will reduce stock value by more than you think. The App Store is a segment of their business that is growing the fastest. By relaxing IAP rules, they wouldn't just be giving up today's earnings, but tomorrow's growth as well. Uh, despite the App Store accounting for about 6% of total revenue, account, uh, revenue it counts for, accounts for about 15-20% of total profit due to the high margins. Thus, a large portion of the value in in Apple stock is derived from Wall Street's expectations of growth in services, which itself is mostly driven by the growth of IAP earnings. So that might be why.
1: Yeah, this is to address Marco's point of like, you know, Apple is seemingly defending the small corner of their business at the cost of the rest of it. Um, This is a a plausible theory of why that might be, because even though it is a small corner, like um, kind of with any sort of rent seeking thing, companies are rewarded for a situation in which it appears that a thing that is growing rapidly will always pay them. So some big percentages that they control, right? Uh, any, anything like that, like that, you know, it looks good for your future financials. Even if the thing you're, you're taking a percentage of is tiny. Now, if it's growing year over year at a huge rate, people can just extrapolate that and say, well, Apple gets whatever percent of that. Again, the profit margins on the app store being even higher than Apple's already very high margins on its hardware. Uh, this, uh, email says 70% for, uh, the app store margins versus 30% for, uh, hardware. I think that hardware one is actually a little low and I'm not sure where the, the app store one comes from, but either way, you can imagine the margins on the app store are higher because they're not creating physical products and shipping them around and all that other stuff. Right. Um, and so, yeah, lots of, lots of things that don't make sense. If you just look at the balance sheet amount wise, start making sense if you realize You know, the dollar signs in people's eyes of like, if this, if trends continue, this will be a whole dollar business and Apple will get this huge profit margin on it and then your stock price gets rewarded. I think it is, I mean, it's plausible, but it is also a fairly pessimistic and cynical take on Apple's motivation to say that Apple is making decisions based on their stock price. Whatever you think about Apple, uh, and I'm sure they are profit and revenue and growth motivated, generally speaking even though people will say tim cook gives lip service to the idea of not doing things to help the stock price but then does things that help the stock price just look at the <laughs> stock price under tim cook's tenure i still think if you were to ask him he would give an honest answer which is that he's just trying to do what he thinks is best for the business without regard for the stock price and the reward for that is a growing stock price and you know and in, in various earning call not earning calls like uh shareholder meetings where tim cook has gotten questions he's what has he said like you know Screw your ROI or whatever, when they're asking why are you doing this thing that doesn't the bloody ROI, yeah, because mm-hmm. he became British to swear about that, yeah. Um, so it's obvious that depend, you know, that he has a set of values and he's not beholden to the stock price. The more plausible answer is that this is one of those values that Tim Cook believes in, and he's not doing it for the stock price, he's doing it because he believes that this is either the right thing for Apple to do as a company or just sort of you know, Apple's, Apple's rightful reward for its work or that it actually does make the app store the better. But like, I'm, I'm not, I don't think for as cynical as you want to be about Tim Cook, I don't think that he is actually massively motivated by uh, doing what Wall Street wants with respect to the stock price. He certainly doesn't need the money himself. He is not beholden to Wall Street for what he does. Uh, But in this case, I think, you know, what, what Apple has been doing regarding the in-app purchase rules also coincidentally aligns with the thing that wall street is rewarding them for
2: i i think it's probably some of both in general apple has historically always been pretty stingy and also pretty greedy and look it works for them that's how they got to be where they are in part you know it's, that's not the only reason they got to where they are obviously but but they have been stingy and greedy for a long time in many areas and they are very you know, successful and big. And so it's hard to argue that they should do anything else. Uh, I, I would add to stingy and greedy. I would add controlling. Of course.
1: Because like, yes. I feel like that, uh, it sounds bad when you say controlling, but like, I mean that in all the senses, like uh, stingy means don't spend money you don't have to. Greedy means like, hey, there's, you know, well that's your word. I probably wouldn't describe it to him, but I would definitely say stingy as in they have so much money, they don't seem to want to spend a lot of it. But controlling is the big one, which is if there is, Something that could go either way, don't leave it up to Wall Street, our customers, our developers. Let's us make a decision and control it in such a way that if someone disagrees with us, if our shareholders disagree with us, if our customers disagree, if our developers disagree, we have control over it. So controlling is the word I would use to, to the value that Apple is pursuing
2: <laughs> with a, with the App Store is that they want to be in control. Yeah, that's that's definitely part of it as well. Um, But I I think, ultimately, when it comes to something that makes them a lot of money, they are not super morally principled, necessarily. If it makes them a ton of money, they usually keep making that money. I can't really fault them for that because, you know, they are such a big company and a public company at that. You know, suppose, like, Tim Cook wanted to make a big stand and, like, pull out of China really fast or something and, and, you know, lose a whole bunch of money by pulling out of China. Uh, That that would be... You know, by a lot of people's measures, that would be a pretty good moral move. Um, But the amount of like instant money loss that was, quote, unnecessary would probably, I would imagine, again, not being an expert in this area, result in possibly a shareholder lawsuit. Tim Cook would almost certainly be pressured to step down and possibly be forced to step down um, as the executives like it, it would there would be serious ramifications. Just by how big they are, and that they are public and everything else. Um, but something like relaxing the App Store rules, I understand why the Apple attitude. Which, again, for all the, for all the wonderful things that we love about this company and its products, um, they certainly have some some attitude issues, and and one of those is arrogance. Um, and maybe arrogance is a better word than greed, um, but it's kind of hard to tell the difference sometimes when things are this big, <laughs> like when when you're talking about six or 15 or 20 percent of some kind of revenue category or the whole company's revenue that's enough money that they'll overlook a lot and in this case it's a combination i think of they're making a ton of money and also they believe they are fully in the right thanks to their, just their kind of their culture there the, the culture they have the way they view themselves they still view themselves as the underdog despite being the man like they like if you're <laughs> like they are the like they became IBM slash Microsoft whoever they were, whoever they were fighting against in their early days like they are now that or bigger They are the monsters that they fought in the past. They are now those monsters to the rest of the industry. Um, But they don't think so. They still think they're the underdog. And they spent so long having the entire media and and tech world telling them all this BS about themselves that was wrong or telling them that they were wrong or that they were bad and they sucked and they were doing things wrong. They spent so long having that be told to them that – They developed an incredibly thick skin for rejecting any outside criticism and any outside viewpoint that says anything other than Apple is right. Apple knows best and Apple's doing what's right. This is one of the reasons why we see occasional things, occasional signs of this leaking out these days where like, it seems like they have trouble reading the room. Sometimes they put something out there that generates a a certain like immediate negative reaction and Apple seems genuinely surprised by that, even though to all of us on the outside, it's obvious that would be a negative thing, but it seems genuinely like, like they are surprised by a negative reaction of things. I think that's because of this this kind of cultural – I wouldn't even call it a blind spot. It's like a cultural character flaw they have. They spent so long having to def- defend themselves and proving themselves right over time that they have a really hard time seeing when they're not 100% in the right and they have a really hard time thinking because of that underdog psychology they have a really hard time thinking that they might not deserve some part of what they have now or what they can take now they think they deserve all of it and they do deserve most of it but when you have an area like this you know app store shakedown business they're in um you know see also casino games for children you know there's a lot of areas of this that are that are you know kind of gross it's really hard for anyone in Apple to ever see it that way because of this, this culture that's deep-rooted in the company. In, and it goes top to bottom. It co- like, it's not just like the handful of older executives who were at the top who were there in the other days. This is a culture that runs deep through the whole company because they keep telling themselves the same stories over and over again. And so ultimately, this is not going to be an easy thing to ever break uh, for them. I hope they do find a way to to find a better balance in a lot of these areas. Now, whether they would actually relax the IAP rules uh, and what kind of profit this would actually cost them in practice and what that would actually do to the stock price and how much that would actually matter to the company and and you know all the associated things with the stock price, I wouldn't make a lot of big assumptions on big movements in any of those areas. So, for example, if apple were to relax the rule on an iap and would allow people like netflix and amazon or whatever to show their own payments in the apps by the way whether it is shown in a web view or whether it's kicked out to safari for the web browser i don't think that distinction matters at all and i don't think apple thinks that the distinction matters at all because it doesn't no one cares all, all it does is make the flow more complicated but if you are allowed to use like a UI text view in your app to enter a credit card versus you're required to kick out to Safari, that doesn't matter at all. That distinction is is not a distinction with a difference. Anyway, assume that companies are allowed to use their own in-app purchase things and they can use Apple's if they want to. I don't think every app would instantly jump to dumping Apple's thing because that's not how anything works. I wouldn't. I'd keep using it in Overcast. And if apps offered both, which I think they would be pressured to by many of their customers, in most examples, except for the very biggest things like, you know, Amazon, Netflix, Facebook, you know, stuff like that, where like there's so much user momentum behind that. The company that runs the app is able to dictate terms way more than their customers are. Um, You know, in most cases, I think most apps would continue to just use in-app purchase. And the, the really big companies would have the option not to and you know people like me like we could we could offer it we could offer our own thing too but i think many of our customers would tell us hey you know what? we're going to use an app purchase and that's fine and that's honestly that's why i I wouldn't even probably bother doing my own thing unless i wanted to do some kind of you know readability revenue sharing kind of thing that wouldn't that would require a lower commission to make it effective but otherwise i don't i don't think i'd go that route i think most developers wouldn't and so it's not that their app store revenue would go from whatever it is today to zero most of the companies that would add in-app purchase stuff that that like their own in-app purchase stuff aren't using Apple's system today. You already have like, you know, Netflix, Amazon, like these companies aren't already aren't using it. So you wouldn't be losing their money. You are. They already lost their money years ago if they ever had it in the first place. What they would lose is some of the app store money. Now, it's hard to know how much that is. I think the the area they're probably more worried about is the gaming market, because that is. By most people's measures, a substantial portion of App Store revenue. Not Substantial isn't it? like eighty-five percent of of uh, the App Store profit is games. I don't know if we if if we have good data on that, but I think the estimates we've seen have it pretty high, like that. It's it's not just like close to fifty. It's
1: like the vast, vast majority of income from the App Store is games in every estimate that I've ever seen.
2: Yeah, me too. And and so if they were to have some kind of exception where they would just say, "All right, games still have to use an app purchase." But everyone else, now you can use your own thing if you want to. That would make the difference even smaller. Uh, but even supposing they allowed everyone to do their own in-app purchase, including games, this isn't going to go to zero. I don't even think they would lose 20%. Because the games would have you know, the same market pressure that people like me do in our apps of like, yeah, we can put our own credit card system in, but if we don't also support in-app purchase... Tons of our customers out there either can't or won't use our purchase system. Apple's in app purchase system is pretty good. It has a lot of limitations, but it's overall a pretty compelling option for much of the time if you have for in the case of games you have things like kids using devices that have parental controls on them and you have the ability for for like you know the parent to approve a purchase one by one or to set allowances and stuff like you have great capabilities in the in-app purchase system now that games would be heavily incentivized by just the sheer numbers of it games can afford the 30% because people will use it and if they put their own system in a lot fewer people would so ultimately i i don't think a ton of this revenue this app store revenue would disappear if apple relaxed this rule some yeah some of it probably will but i don't even know if it would be enough that we'd notice the regular growth of this of this margin of of, the, of this revenue rather is so like you know nice even going up that we it might it might even hide this dip like as it happens slowly over time. Like I don't even I don't even know if it would be noticeable because I think ultimately what you'd end up with is probably at least 80% of the current app store revenue and probably even more than that.
0: 80% is a lot less than 100% though.
2: Yeah, but I think it would be it would be something that's, that's happening gradually over time. It's still look it's not the iPhone. Like it's yeah, this is a lot of money. It's not the iPhone. It's not you know a, a ridiculous massive portion of Apple's money and Because it would happen over time, I don't think you'd even notice in the stock price. I I think what you might notice in the stock price is if there's a threat of heavy government regulation coming in, that probably has more of an effect on the stock price than the potential that they might lose a total of, what, 2% of their revenue maybe if they lost some portion of the absolute – like what do we – I don't even think we'd be talking about 2% of their total revenue. I I think it's so – the numbers that like what the company makes is so much and so massive from all the other areas of their business. The app store is also not their only services revenue. Granted it's most of it, which I think is kind of gross as a concept. um, But I I don't think they would lose that much money from this and what they're risking by inviting antitrust style regulation onto them from major world governments. um, I think is much bigger than this. And, and so I, I still maintain that it's a terrible strategy for them to stand firm on this. But I think the reason we're seeing them stand firm is a combination of what Abel here says in this comment about it is a, a lot of money in absolute terms, and maybe they're afraid their stock price would go down. Um, but also, I think, as I was saying earlier, Apple thinks they are entitled to all of this. And they, they, they think they built this entire ecosystem, and they're entitled to a slice of every single thing that happens on it. I think that argument is both incredibly arrogant and also incredibly deeply flawed, uh, because lots of things contributed contributed to this, and lots of other people probably think they deserve it too. Like I don't know your ISP, your cellular carrier, your you know processor manufacturer, maybe Samsung for making your RAM or your display, um, you know, Cisco for all the routers involved along the way, <laughs> maybe the people who lay under underground cables or undersea cables for internet connectivity everywhere. I mean, lots of people think they you know. <laughs> Anyway, I don't, I don't want to get into all that now. But there is a deep-rooted cultural belief in Apple that they deserve all of this, and that's going to be very hard for them to ever get over. And I think that's the reason we're seeing so much stubbornness on this. Not that they are afraid of losing twenty percent of their revenue, because I, I don't think that's—I don't think it would be anything like that.
1: Things just to circle back on to Abel's point it, his, his main point was that it's not about the size of the revenue, it's about percentage of growth. So, even though it is a small, currently a small slice of the pie, if you look at it as what percentage of Apple's growth, like all of their growth is happening in, in services and everything else is more or less stagnant. So, even though it is a tiny percentage of their revenue, it could be like you know, a two percent change in their revenue could be a 50 percent reduction in their growth. Um, so, that was his point with like the, the why potentially Wall Street might. You know, be afraid of that. And he he was extrapolating from that to saying, and that's why Apple's doing it because they care about the stock price. And I don't really quite agree with that. And the second thing is on on Apple's, you know, on Apple's general motivation, uh, money-based motivation for making decisions. uh, I think part of the reveal of the Epic trial and seeing all the internal emails is that to my recollection, every time I saw any kind of email discussing some controversial issue within Apple, nobody was there to say, we can't do this. It will lose us too much money. In fact, all I ever saw was the opposite. Lots of emails saying uh, someone is super mad at us for one of our policies, but they're kind of important. What can we do to make them happy, right? Or, you know, the you know famously the Phil Schiller one of like, should we really be doing thirty percent for a long time? We're making a lot of money on this. Maybe we can lower it. Like, at no point, high level executive, low level person, whatever. At no point did someone say, yeah, but if we did that, it would make us lose money. Um, I'm sure they're in there, but the vast majority of the emails that I remember seeing that were highlighted, usually highlighted show Apple in a, in a, in a poor light. So it's not like they cherry picked to make Apple look good. Like these were emails that you would say, I look at Apple doing this thing that they said they never do. Like it would show them to be hypocritical or, you know, disingenuous or whatever. But in general, people debating, were trying to sort of do damage control inside Apple, not saying, but we can't do that because we demand to make money. So I would, you know, I, I don't think. I don't think that's the the way Apple works is worrying about the stock price or worrying about absolute values. But I do think it is a larger moral stance, business stance of like, like Marco was saying that not in such a, I don't think in in such a sort of craven way as, as Marco puts it, but in general, like the evidence of what Apple believes it deserves is embodied by their policies, right? That's just, there's the bottom line and the inflexibility of those policies. Like clearly Apple thinks this is a reasonable arrangement, whether or not they think it's like justified or deserved. I did a blog post about this ages ago of like, it's not, you know, in any kind of economic arrangement, arguing about who deserves what or whatever, it's an interesting debate to have. But in the end, if it is a reasonably efficient market of some kind, which I would say, you know, for the most part, these things are because they're much less regulated than other areas, which is why the government's looking into it. um, The only question is, is this arrangement agreeable to all interested parties, right? That was, I, I forget what Post I wrote about this, but it's like in the end, that's all that matters. Um, there are there are multiple people involved in this. There are users that are developers, and there are Apple. And Apple may dictate the policies, but it has to choose policies that keep people happy enough that there's not open revolt. And Apple's got people in open revolt now. So whether or not you think Apple deserves X, Y, or Z. Um, and, you know, getting back to the game consoles, which was the example I used, the game consoles are way worse than Apple, but somehow game consoles are able to manage that relationship so that everyone involved at least sort of grudgingly goes along with it because this is like mutually beneficial. And Apple, uh, their policies seem to have s- shifted off of that, you know, sort of happy medium where everyone is equally disgruntled. And I think basically everyone, everyone is in open or at least the big powerful people are in open revolt and assume the government is an open revolt. And this is a bad situation. And even if I 100% agree that Apple deserved every single penny they're collecting, which I don't, but even if I did agree, doesn't matter who deserves what. All that matters is, is this deal working or is it not working? Uh, Right now, it is not working, so something needs to happen. I don't think they believe it's not working. Well, I mean, they believe it when they health polls in front of Congress. <laughs> like, like that's, that's a know? sign of things not working because that doesn't happen on its own. It doesn't happen because like Congress is doing this out of the goodness of its heart. Like they have powerful enemies who are making this happen. And those enemies are supposed to be their quote unquote partners in like the win win scenario of the app store. And that relationship has just been disintegrating from Netflix, who used to be giving them hundreds of millions of dollars per year to giving them zero. As you noted, that is, you know, sort of the beginning of the end. Like, yeah, it's. I, I agree that Apple maybe thinks like this is salvageable we can save this like it's not a big deal like I think they may be in that mode right but I from my perspective the the arrangement that they have despite the fact that they are so much nicer than game console uh, platform owners uh, they have uh, their 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 powerful customers are much more angry than game consoles powerful customers which is saying something because game consoles powerful customers are generally pretty angry the fact that there was a big Twitter thread uh, on on just today about someone complaining about how uh, poorly Sony treats them and how little control they have over things. Like, again, if you think the app store is bad, just look at how consoles work. But somehow, over the decades, these incredibly controlling console makers have managed to keep enough artistic people engaged and involved and rewarded to keep making games for their platforms otherwise they wouldn't be here right i mean a bunch of game consoles aren't here sorry sega Uh, (laughs) (laughs) off. yeah but it's it's not easy to do but you know right now nintendo sony and microsoft are walking that line with a bunch of super angry developers who nevertheless say but i'm still going to keep making games for your platform because it makes me a lot of money
0: (laughs) (laughs) all right john tell me about your mouse pad
1: this is such a weird one i I just threw this in here because this is a strange topic week. Uh, because I'm paranoid about my simple little programs that I run 24 hours a day for a while, I was going over mousing over to uh, my little switch glass palette, which is in the upper right corner of the screen. And I would notice when I got over to it, my mouse would seem like it was laggy. And I'm like, okay, this is not i'm not using a bluetooth mouse so that's not what it is it's plugged into usb and i'm like am i doing something in my app where like i'm spiking the cpu when the mouse compass i have a bunch of like invisible drag readings to know when your cursor is in there for a variety of, you know switch class looks simple but it's it's actually ridiculously complicated with the shenanigans i do to try to make it make the functionality work anyway I'm like maybe i'm doing something with the cpu is it spiking or whatever and I, and like and it was reproducible. I'm like, every time I go over there, it's, the, the mouse cursor lags like my, like my CPU cores are saturated or something, or like it's a Bluetooth glitch. And, you know, and I looked, you know, I had Xcode open, I looked, I'm like, that's not actually happening. Like, nothing is going wrong here. It's not spiking the CPU. And then I, you know, I immediately jumped to the next thing. Is like, well, that is on the right edge of my screen. And when I mouse over to the right edge of my screen, my mouse is on the right half of my mouse pad. So maybe it's actually the right half of my mouse pad it's the problem. So I put the cursor on the left side of the screen, but then picked up my mouse and put it over on the right half of the mouse pad. Guess what? My mouse can't track very well on the right half of my <laughs> mouse pad. and it, <laughs> it's blowing my mind. Like, how long have we had optical mice? Right? It's not like I'm mousing on a glass table like Casey. Like, this is not a challenging <laughs> surface. It
0: is. I don't use a regular I know, mouse anymore. I know, Come when on, you do it on a
1: glass table. It's a good joke. Um, I I have like a box stock fabric it is black, maybe that's not good, but a box stock black fabric mouse pad. And presumably the optical sensor in the bottom of this fairly expensive Microsoft mouse should be able to track on a very textured, you know, woven fabric, you know what a fabric mouse pad service is like. I'm not challenging this mouse. And yet the right half of my mouse pad, my mouse tracks poorly on it. I can just pick up the mouse, put it over the right side, have my cursor anywhere on the screen in any app. And it like, it's not it's not related to the computer. It's just literally my mouse pad and the mouse and this is, I think, the first time this has ever happened to me in, you know, however many, since 19, I've been using mice since 1984. I've been cleaning mouse balls and rollers, and I've tried every kind of optical mouse, and never before have I seen a mouse that has trouble tracking on a fabric mouse pad surface. I just wanted to share this story with you. What am I going to do about it? I don't know. I have, like, sheets and sheets of this mouse pad fabric that I cut to, you know, exact dimensions. Maybe I'll get a new sheet, uh, but it is a Scientific curiosity to me. What in the hell is it about the right half of my mousepad is different than the left? Because to the to the naked eye they look identical.
0: That sounds delightful. You know, you could just switch to a trackpad. No, why
1: would I do that? That's
0: it's
2: terrible. Or you could you you could use my um, Teflon coated mouse pads. I, I did use them for a while. In fact, I have an actual
1: Apple-branded, uh, you know, Teflon-coated mouse pad from... Well, I don't know if it's Teflon, but it's the same type of hard plastic, slippery, hard plastic stuff. Uh, it was, like, Apple in the, like, Palatino font with the ridiculous kerning from the 80s. If it's hard plastic, it's probably not Teflon. Yeah, it's probably... I mean, it's too old. It's probably too old to be Teflon. It was before, like, gaming mouse pads and things where it had to be super slippery. But it was hard plastic and slippery. But that was, like, you know... We were worried about mouse ball traction back in those days. And actually, the first... The first mousing surface that I used, at the suggestion of my grandfather, who was instrumental in convincing my parents to buy an original Mac, he because he he was a you know woodworker, he had made his own like setup for his computer. And he had a big piece of glass that he put on top of his wooden desk. And he would slide oh, under really? the glass, he would slide under the glass various things that he had printed for himself on his image writer to remind him of like how a Mac works and all the different functions and everything, right? Like little, you know, and you could see them through the glass desktop. But anyway, um, the original Mac mouse on a glass desktop was actually a pretty good surface. That's what he promoted. He said, you should get a glass desktop, like actual top to your desk because the mouse ball grips well. The mouse ball was a weighted ball with grippy rubber on it. And as long as your glass wasn't wet, which hopefully it wasn't near your computer, there's actually a pretty good traction between the ball and the glass. So, my first mousing service was glass with a you know weighted ball mouse on an original Mac. I don't think I only introduced the, the mouse pad concept maybe around the time of ADB uh, when we got our first ADB mouse, and I think maybe like the Mac came with a mouse pad or something, or we bought one at Egghead or something. But yeah, I've been on mouse pads ever since.
0: Good to know. All right, so we've had in the show notes for forever and a day. There are two cool geeky Mac apps that you would like to bring up, John.
1: Yeah, um, this is one of the great things about the Mac is there's tons and tons of different ways to do stuff. Uh, And everyone can sort of choose which way best fits their brain. Um, And the task I'm going to describe, I'm sure if you're a Mac user, you can think of a hundred ways that it could be done. And if you are a developer, you probably have whatever your favorite way to do it, and you do it that way. Uh, The example I'm going to pick is something I find myself having to do frequently at work, which is to uh, pretty format some snippet of JSON right you get some response from an api api doesn't care about pretty printing you just want to be able to see it with your eyes to be able to parse it and it's a you know a wad of crap uh some people may say oh i just go to you know prettyprintjs.org or some website or whatever and i just paste it in there and do it and some people say no don't waste paste proprietary stuff into websites you're revealing company secrets uh you should have a local pretty printer or you should do it from the command line or I have a service in the services menu that does it. And like, that's the beauty of the Mac. I use LaunchBar to do it like this. You know, there's a million different ways you can do this on the Mac. For whatever reason, I never was really happy with all those ways that I described and more. Like I've done many of them, right? You know, there's so many ways you can do it. You can make a little script to do it and launch that script from a command key. You can have a little thing in the menu bar. Like again, the beauty of the Mac. And somehow I discovered this app Called Boop, which is a good name, B O O P, uh, and it is basically a way to bring up a text window, and you can paste some text into there and then do crap to it. And you may look <laughs> at it and say, every app does that, launch bar does that. Uh, what is it? Uh, not Albert, uh, Alfred does Alfred, that. Mm-hmm. You can do it with Quicksilver. You can do it in the services menu again. Like this seems like an app that has no point because I can do these things another way. But the point of it is that for a certain set of people, apparently me included. This is the sort of least friction fastest way to do this. You just bring up boop, paste in the thing, and then you do a command to to like reformat and you have many choices besides just pretty print JSON. And of course, it is completely a pluggable system where you can, again, if you're a programmer, write very simple little plugins to manipulate whatever you pasted in any way you want. Uh, And then it goes away and no, like if you ever did it, like making a temporary BB edit document or doing it in a scratch pad and sublime or like this. You know, he, I do it in a buffer in Emacs, like, again, whatever fits your brain. But I just wanted to suggest this app because I like this class of app that is like a thing that you can do in a million other ways. But here's one more way to do it. Oh, and by the way, it's completely pluggable by programmers where you can just write a simple shell script or Perl script or whatever. And it has like a plug in API that you don't have to like compile anything. You don't need to use Xcode. You can just extend this to your heart's content. If you like this kind of interface, if you like bring up a window, paste in text, do a thing to it, close the window and be done. Boop is pretty cool. Check it out.
2: Hmm, this is I actually might give this a shot. I I'm, I'm normally very resistant to installing new Mac utilities. I don't think I have really good reason for that. It's just how I am. Like, I, I like I don't have a good justification. Like, you know, some people would be like, "Well, I want to be able to run like the most stock setup possible." For me, it's it's not quite about that. It's more like it it takes a lot of utility for me to add something to my Mac setup where i'm much more willing to try stuff on ios say what you will about ios and you know safety app store side loading all that crap um say that for another day but <laughs> so this this actually looks pretty good though like i because i i will frequently you know open up a new textmate window and you know use a bundle to maybe do something like that or something but like a lot of this stuff yeah i think i think i'll give this a shot because I, I think this could be a lot more streamlined than a lot of the ways that i solve these needs uh, today yeah
1: and it comes with a bunch of stuff built-in like when you can when you press command b it gives you like an autocomplete and you can type json and you'll see there's not just pretty print json there's convert let me just do it now hang on i'll just type js evaluate javascript json to yaml query string to json json to query string format json yaml to json jwt decode or jot if you would like minify json csv to json json to csv like this is just me typing js in the autocomplete of the built-in actions and of course If there's some, again, if you're a programmer, this is kind of a programmery tool. If there's some action you want, it's like, no, I want you to do exactly this. You can write that plugin in whatever language you want, more or less, and plug it into this. And now you've got your own, you know, convenient tool to do this. Again, if this particular interface appeals to you, and the only kind of way to tell whether it appeals, like I didn't think it would appeal to me until I had tried it. And then I realized, oh, pretty printing JSON that way is better than the 900 other ways that I routinely do it. It just, because I can activate it quickly and it goes away quickly and there's no sort of cleanup and i like the pretty printer the default one that was built in so yeah check it out
2: yeah that's like the cleanup i think is a, is a really good uh angle because like it's like like you know the ios app drafts is one of the great like wins of this philosophy of not making people manage documents when they don't need to or or want to uh, and and i think this is one of those things like so many times like i'll, I'll do like I'll, I'll do something like in, in textmate where i will maybe i'll you know do something in the terminal with you know i'll, I'll like copy something to, to the pasteboard or whatever and then I'll, I'll do you know pb paste pipe json pp or whatever and it, yeah you can do that and then i'll like i'll pipe that then to mate for textmates so then i'll have a new textmate window and then okay now i have a new, a new window and where does that go well most of the time it just sits around for a while maybe it gets hidden and minimized somewhere and then i find it like a week later and as i'm you know command tildeing through all my textmate windows trying to find something and there's like 17 like single use textmate documents that i did something like this in uh that now they're just cluttering up my textmate window i gotta close them do i want to save no i don't want to save like it's just so yeah this i i can see this being being potentially useful
1: I like their website, too. It's got a nice demo of the app. If you're like, you're wondering what the app is, just go to the website. The top thing is an animation showing to you. But their main bullet points, the the top one really shows like how, I guess, how most people who, uh, you know, started their careers on the web do things. The main selling point is stop pasting company secrets into random websites. Because honestly, <laughs> of all the ways that I just described to do this, I think people essentially going to Google and asking Google to do it or finding or bookmarking. And I don't think these bookmarks are just like typing JSON pretty print into Google, going to the first website and pasting their, their company's proprietary API into the thing without thinking. That's how most people do it. So,
2: yeah.
0: I also love, uh, the company or the group or whatever that, that built this is called okay at best. <laughs> I like that. It's like neutral. It, mm-hmm. you know, we're not setting expectations too high here.
2: I like <laughs> I the, though, uh, a uh, user in the chat, Adge Larso says, it's like paper plates, but for JSON.
0: <laughs> That's perfect. That is perfect. Oh, goodness. All right. And then I, I, I've had Boop installed, but I keep forgetting about it. And so I haven't used it that much, but uh, obviously I, I liked it enough to install it. Um, and then I discovered this next thing and i and i have opinions about it would you like me to introduce it john or, or would you like to yeah
1: go for it like this has been in here so long that there's actually some history now <laughs> attached yeah. to the item but when it was first put in there it was uh, a new interesting thing and it has it has a, had a journey
0: yeah so up. this is a thing that i think jason and dan at six colors brought to my attention called bitbar it, it was
2: in the show notes before that just fyi oh my oh, god we're enough. talking okay. about this now yeah,
1: Welcome I had it like in the three years. years ago. I had it in the show notes so early, and then everyone starts blogging about it, and now it looks like I'm following them. And then it just got old, and then there was it. anyway. <laughs> go on.
0: You were there before it was cool. Don't worry.
1: I was totally into Bitbar before it was cool.
0: Uh, so anyway, so Bitbar <laughs> in, is is a an app that lets you put the output of like shell scripts into your menu bar. So, as an example, although I don't use BitBar anymore, and we'll get to that in a second, as an example, I have the current ATP membership count in my menu bar. I have my garage door status, because why wouldn't I? And we've talked about this recently, but why wouldn't I? Uh, and actually, thanks to a friend of the show, Mark Edwards. I have bespoke uh, garage door icons now, which is a development since we last spoke about this on the show. Um, and then I feel like there's one other thing I have up there, but I don't see anything else right now. So anyways, um it it lets you put the output of shell scripts on your on your menu bar, which is super cool and you can use for any number of things. I think Jason Snell has like his actual houses temperature you know exterior temperature because he has a weather station in his house uh, that he put up there and there's all sorts of different stuff you can do i actually use a reboot called uh, or not a reboot i'm sorry an alternative i guess or a revival called swift bar so a uh, quick history Bitbar was a thing and then it kind of fell into disrepair uh, a person decided to, whose name escapes me, I'm so sorry, oh my god, uh, a person whose name escapes me decided to reboot it as a Swift app and, you know, rewrite it from Objective-C to Swift. And that's what I've been using, is Swift bar, and I've actually contributed extremely minor things to it. So I, I, I you could say I have in part written Swift bar, except not really um so anyways uh swiftbar is excellent it is rewritten in swift it works with all the bitbar plugins that you can find generally speaking uh and it works out really well and meanwhile the original author of bitbar has decided you know what i want to do when i want to make a native mac app i want to write that in go what yeah so there is a bitbar reboot now written in go if that's your thing oh my so yeah. All of these are free. Um, they are excellent. Again, I'm throwing my weight behind Swift bar, uh, but you can do what you like. Uh, but they're very, very, very cool. And it's, it's fascinating that you can put darn near anything in your menu bar if you really, really want to. And it'll, you'll obviously automatically refresh itself if you so desire. These are very, very cool apps and I really enjoy them. John, what are you using Bitbar or Swift bar or whatever for?
1: I'd, I'm not actually using that one that much. Um, I just thought it was neat because like it's the same it's the same uh, philosophy of tool, which probably doesn't have particularly wide appeal, which is maybe why these are not like huge commercial successes or commercial at all. But it's a GUI Mac app, but it lets you extend it by writing, you know, you said shell scripts. It really it's just like literally any kind of command line executable you want because like in the case of Bitbar, like you essentially emit text to standard out in a format that Bitbar understands in a sort of a little ASCII format. And with it, you describe, hey, I want to have a menu. I want there to be five items. I want this to be the first item, the second item, then a separator. Then, like, it's not just, like, oh, put this text in the menu bar, although you can do that, and it's super easy to do that. Again, it's like the simplicity. It's like Unix tools, right? Oh, so, you know, like in the classic Mac days, it would be like, oh, I have a pluggable menu bar utility, and you got to write, like, code resources and, you know, use uh, Apple's IDE or Code Warrior or something to compile these little things. And this is like, no, the Unix way is, You just write a thing and emit text on standard out and our app will parse it and do what you say. And the simple case is simple. You just want to put some text in the menu bar, emit that text more or less from, you know, again, from any way you want, from an executable that we can run that writes the standard out. And that is an interface that appeals to developers and Unix nerds. And it is just so low friction. Like if you just want to do that thing, like putting, you know, putting the number in the menu bar takes you two seconds. You're done. Right, and it's same thing with Boop. Like that, it is extensible, but extensible in a way that is accessible to developers who don't really want to like buy into your whole system. They don't. They don't want to fire up Xcode. They just want to do a quick thing. Um, and so it's, it's sort of like the again another thing I love about the Macs, mar- marrying a really nice GUI with Unix underpinnings. And th- when they meet, it's so rare that like there is an app that is like half Mac and half Unix and is good in both apps. They really stand out to me, so that's why I thought this was a nice pair.
0: Real time follow up: Alex Mazanov is the SwiftBar person, and uh, really, really, really good people. So I apologize, I completely blanked on your name, but uh, I've been using SwiftBar for quite a while, and it is it is really, really great. And it doesn't mean the others are bad, but uh, but I favor SwiftBar, and, and I really and like
1: it. And I think this is another example of like it shows that this is a good idea. Kind of like one of the early ones was things that come up when you hit Command Space kind of pioneered by quicksilver popularized by quicksilver but launch bar predates it, i believe uh, but anyway that was such a good idea that there are a bunch of apps that are like that whether you call them launchers or whatever like the idea that you would make a, a a GUI, you know the GUI idea of like it pops up you do stuff with it and it disappears and you know pops up on command space or whatever until apple tried to steal that back but i totally always oh, switch it back to be my launcher thing. But then it's like, oh, well, you can do anything for that prompt. You can type text. You can do this. And, it dep- you know, a bunch of apps sprung up. The fact that, like, Bitbar, I don't know if Bitbar was the first one, but that, like, now there's Swiftbar and the reboot of Bitbar. Like, it's a good enough idea that this is, like, I feel like a category of app now uh, that, yeah, lots of people can take different runs at implementing it uh but i think what they've just hit on is a good idea i think boop is also a good idea it overlaps a lot with the quote-unquote launchers because a lot of them including quicksilver have a way where you can bring up the interface and type some text and manipulate it but boop is uh a much cleaner interface that is really purpose-built for just this one thing and you don't have to muck up your launcher with it
0: Let's do some Ask ATP. And John Strand writes, what do you make of Apple's relationship to Matter or Chip, or as I like to call it, CHOIP? Uh, are there competitive dynamics between Apple and the other players, Amazon, Google, Samsung, others, that might affect or limit development of the standard? How nice will Apple play with others in the area? And could they be a positive influence on the issues of privacy? So to back up a, a step, what was once known as connected home over IP, which I abbreviated CHOIP, some people called CHIP, uh, has now been renamed Matter. Matter. And the idea is it's a bunch of these companies, again, Amazon, Google, Apple, Samsung, et cetera, that are coming together to say, let's come up with one particular like API or interface or what have you for smart home things. So you don't have to have things that only the Amazon tube can talk to and that only HomeKit can talk to and so on and so forth. Um, I, I... Maybe I'm naive, but I don't see why this is anything but a good thing, having all of these people together and trying to reach some sort of having all of these people together and trying to reach some sort of collective conclusion on things. I, I don't really see why this is bad or 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 you know, why there would be competitive dynamics other than let's just try to find the best solution. But maybe I'm I'm childish and naive. So John, what what am I missing?
1: I don't follow this space too closely, but to to me, as a casual observer, it looks like what happens in a lot of industries like this. If, you know, after the initial sort of burst of innovation and attempts to gain supremacy, if no one party gains sufficient supremacy to dictate terms of the entire industry, it eventually becomes in everyone's collective interest uh, in these types of markets to agree on some kind of standard, because basically they all agree, look, we all hate each other and we're all competing, but we will all collectively sell more smart home crap uh, if it all works with each other. And because none of us could get enough share to basically box out everyone else and say, I don't care about your standards. Like, we are dominant. That apparently didn't happen enough in this industry. So they just say, okay, well, we tried. We all tried to dominate. We failed. Let's all do this thing. Let's all somehow agree on some standard that we can live with. Because after that, now competition is... Freer. They all they all believe that they this this deal will allow them to get an edge because now we will be able to get our devices into homes that have your device in them. Whereas before we couldn't. But they all think that, right? They're all like, so I I think this is a good move for consumers. I think you know the internet has shown when there is some kind of common standard for interoperability of tech products, especially network tech products. That's a good thing for literally everyone involved, right? Uh, like, if we, were, if we were if America Online had taken over instead of the internet, it would be worse for everybody, including America Online. <laughs> well, maybe not including America Online because they kind of got you know the wrong end of the deal, but anyway, for stuff like this, you know, TCPIP, Ethernet, Wi Fi, it is good that there are industry standards for that. Home stuff, it will be, I think, good that there are industry standards for that. Now, as for whether Apple being part of this will improve privacy, uh, you know, as as they said in the episode of The Simpsons, well, I haven't listened to the top four episode, Marco, but do you, do you know this reference I'm about to make? <laughs> uh, for some of the members of this consortium, uh, this may mean, uh, you know much less privacy. Like I, I, what I'm saying is I think matter probably isn't up to the privacy standards that Apple may dictate if it had full control of it. But for other members of this consortium, it will mean much, much more security, right? In other words, without this consortium, they would just do whatever the hell they wanted. Who cares about security because all they cared about was getting devices out, right? I'm sure uh, people who know more about smart home can name individual brands that behave in this way, but I'm sure that the bar has been raised by, you know, to, to comply with matter or whatever. You A lot of these companies have to have much more security. And the Simpsons reference I was trying to make, uh, kudos to anybody who got it through that giant thing. Uh, I will give you your internet points if you Honestly, tell me that you got the reference before I explained it. Um, It was the uh, comic book guy talking about Ponfar, the uh, Vulcan breeding uh, event, uh, saying where they breed every seven years. And he said, uh, for some of you, this will mean much less breeding. For others of us, it will mean much, much more.
2: (laughs) And to answer your question, I did not get the reference. (laughs) It was a comic book guy, not your favorite character. Don't spoil it for me. I haven't listened yet. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway... um, Yeah, I I think the actual, like, I haven't been following the actual details of Matter slash Chip slash Joip to know exactly, like, what the spec is. I do know that, generally speaking, HomeKit has significantly higher security and privacy requirements than, like, the Amazon Alexa stuff or the Google stuff. Um, But, you know, just as, as John was just saying, like, having what's basically a format war going on in in a hardware area it is never great for consumers uh, and you do eventually just want it to kind of settle out into okay just one thing that that's unified slash universal you know for either it encompasses everything or everything else died except this thing and then consumers can just buy that kind of gear and not have a whole bunch of like garbage tech that's useless in a couple of years like my dvd plus rw drive hmm. I, I think in, in this case you know i, I mean home stuff in general, like all the connected home, smart home devices, they're pretty crappy. <laughs> like it might and I, I still use a few of them. I've been reducing my reliance on them over time. Um, they're they're pretty bad. Any help they can get to become good, I hope they I hope they can get that help. Um, I recently went all in on uh, home pods here in our house. Uh, stop using the Amazon stuff almost entirely. Although, if anybody has a solution to operate a home pod outdoors, I'm curious to, to see if, what, my, what my options are. Just put it under your deck. It'll be fine. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but otherwise, for the most part, we're operating um, just home pods. Therefore, we've also switched to just HomeKit as the voice slash, you know, smart controlling uh, API for things in the house. And that's not too hard because we we mostly have home-compatible stuff. And in fact, um, one of the big annoying areas that we didn't have it was our thermostats. Uh, We were an all Nest household. Nest thermostats are terrible, like everything else Nest makes, but they were the seemingly the least terrible option that we had among all the other terrible options. Um, However, they they became the most terrible options when they mostly stopped working with their internet service and I stopped being able to like add them to the house or do almost anything with them or work them reliably. Um, so on the recommendation of the entire internet, uh, about a month or two ago, I switched our thermostats out for Echo Bees, Eco Bees, Echo Bees. I don't know whether it's Echo or Eco. Um, anyway, it's like the only home care thermostat basically. Uh, and, my overall opinion of these has like a little mini topic in here that I'm going to wedge into this ADP topic. This ADP topic. Um, I'm going to sideload it in here. Uh, my my overall <laughs> opinion of the Echo B Thermostat is that it looks worse than Nest. It is harder to adjust than Nest. The app is about as bad as Nest's app, but it works with HomeKit. And that makes it worth having done all that stuff. And it's not Nest. I I'm I'm so sour on Nest after all the crap they've put me through that I just don't want any Nest in my life. And so it's it's not it's not the bad thing and the thermostats look okay and work okay, but critically they work in HomeKit and that's been really nice most of the time. Unfortunately, as with everything HomeKit, they work about 85% of the time. <laughs> And so it's great that 85% of the time uh kind of sucks the rest of it though when I have to like manually go oh why why is the downstairs thermostat not responding who knows let's go into the B app well it works fine there
1: i haven't heard back from your devices
2: yeah right <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and this is not just a homekit thing the amazon echo family of of things and its various smart home devices that work with it Aren't great either. Like I have one of the only things I use, uh, like an automation smart home thing for anymore, is we have an ice maker in our kitchen, and it's a little loud when it runs. And so I I wanted to put a smart outlet on it to basically be a timer so that it would only run like basically while everybody's asleep and not anywhere near it. So it wouldn't like you know be too loud when you're trying to watch a movie in the next room or something like that. Um, and so. I had this this outlet set to run basically for midnight to noon every day, and that's it. The problem is this outlet is it's like a it's like an under the counter like kind of half built in ice maker, kind of like the way a dishwasher is installed. So like to get to the back of it where it plugs in, you have to pull the whole thing out from under the counter. So it's not something you want to be doing frequently. You want to put it in there like at installation time and not mess with it after that. Um, so I put the smart outlet back there and it's like, I, I went on Amazon and just found like whatever was really small. So it would fit back there, really small home kit and Alexa compatible smart. outlet. I figured make it compatible with everything. And it's this like smart things brand that seems really garbagey, but who who knows? So I, I put it back there and it works fine most of the time. Um, except that one time, like a couple months ago, it just stopped working. And I'm like, okay, well, what do I do? I have to like pull the ice maker out, <laughs> and, and like you know, pull the whole like drain tube that it's attached to, and everything. Make sure I don't mess that up. Like, it's a whole thing. Make sure I don't scratch the floor or break the ice maker in the process. <laughs> like, it, it's it's a whole thing. But I did it. I pulled it out. I reset the stupid thing. I put it back in. Smart outlet worked again. Okay, today I'm cleaning the ice maker, and I'm still cleaning the ice maker, which requires you to run it during parts of of the cleaning process. At eleven thirty in the morning and I think, uh oh. This is going to turn itself <laughs> off in a half hour. Let me log into the app, which is some weird smart things app because I never got to work with HomeKit. <laughs> let me try to log in. Let me let me open the app and see if I can control it from there. And I open the app and it's it has logged me out. If I was ever logged in, I don't even know. I try to make an I I, I try to sign into an account. Oh, I don't have an account. And like, okay, now I, I don't even know what to do here it's <laughs> so like all right i have no way to control this outlet unless i pull the whole ice maker out again which i didn't want to do i still don't want to do so i'm just like okay let me look at trying to replace this with like another home kit compatible outlet and I, and I try you try to look and see what's available and it's there's almost nothing on the market except for some like weirdo like no name like you know one of those like amazon brand names <laughs> You know what I mean? Where it's like, you know, the Markov generator brand name of random vowels glued together. It's like, okay, well, <laughs> I, I don't know if I trust that enough to put behind a built-in appliance and to have it just work for you know forever indefinitely. So anyway, this this is this is the kind of experience I have with almost every smart home device of any standard, whether it's HomeKit or the Alexa stuff, or you know the the Buck and Wemo, Philips Hue. All I've tried so many of these things; they are all Almost good, but they're just like a little bit unreliable, or you have to occasionally like unpair it from your entire house and repair it for God knows why. Even the Echo B thermostats, like setting them up on HomeKit required like jumping through weird hoops with their setup to have them even show up to HomeKit. And then like sometimes you have to like reset it all the way and then go back through the whole process again to get it re added to HomeKit. It's like none of this is good. None of this is good enough to be installed in someone's house behind an ice maker or whatever. Like Stuff that you install in houses, you kind of expect it to work reliably indefinitely into the future. And none of this stuff is good enough. So all this is to say that if chip or CHOIP or Matter or whatever can somehow be better than what we have now, whether it's through you know better device management with like authentication and control via via these various apis and stuff or whether it's through different radio protocols by adopting thread and stuff like that however it happens it needs to happen smart home stuff has been around now for quite a while it should be good and it's not and it's not the question of like oh you you can't buy the cheap garbage you can buy the if you buy the nice one it's better no the nice ones aren't better they're not more reliable it isn't like if you if you go like go with the Apple product cuz then then it'll work 100% of the time. Nope, doesn't. Or the Amazon stuff, you can go with that? Nope, doesn't. I don't have any experience with the Google stuff, but I I, I imagine it's probably similar from what I've heard from other people. None of the stuff is good. None of it's that reliable. None of it's easy for most people to do. And most of it requires you to mess with it like every six months somehow for some reason and i just want to get past that point in the technology like we can do this as a society we've made technologies that can last that can be low maintenance and reliable things like light switches <laughs> regular ones they they last a long time they're very reliable very simple we need to get to that point for the smart home stuff and we're so far from it now so i hope that matter brings us closer
1: I was thinking of the device my parents had that we would hook up to the lamp that was in the window at the front of the house when we went on vacation, and it was basically plugged into the wall, and then it looked like kind of like a a large version of a a countertop kitchen timer. Like it had a big dial on it, and you'd you'd adjust these two little plastic things. One would be adjusted to the on point, and one would be adjusted to the off point, and then from it would be a power cord. And it was just literally like a ticking clock type of timer that would make the lights go on at this hour and go off at this hour. Uh, and it was not computerized. It did, it did not have any smartphone functionality. Wi-Fi had not been invented yet. The internet was not <laughs> <laughs> was not in anyone's <laughs> home. Uh, but it could reliably turn that light, uh, you know, on at 7 p.m. and off at 9 p.m. or whatever hours were supposed to fool the very dumb burglars into thinking we were home and not on vacation. Uh, but there was probably a Technology Connections video about these devices. But if there's not, <laughs>
0: uh,
1: maybe you can ask him to make one. Unfortunately for your ice maker situation, probably wouldn't help you because if you could fit one of those back behind the ice maker, it would probably work reliably for years. But in the situation where you're like, oh no, it's 1130. You still need to get back there to the timer to make it not turn off. Uh, I'm sure there are other better solutions, but what I'm saying is that uh, your needs are so low tech that you probably don't actually need anything smart here. You could probably get away with something a lot dumber, maybe farther down the line of the electrical system if you really need to. But your larger point about this stuff being crappy is true. And I think the main advantage that, Matter would bring, like I was saying before, is that thing that you had to do where you got to do the the Echo B setup, but then like do a second setup to get it onto HomeKit. Yeah. I had the same thing with my smart outlets; like the native app has its thing, but then if you wanted to do a HomeKit, you're doing something se- separate. Not having to do two things, not having to have two systems—the like the quote-unquote native one—and then also work compatible with HomeKit, even if they're both supported as peers, as equal peers. There's always like, well, you know, which one am I setting it up on? And maybe one is more reliable than the other. Just having one system at least lets these manufacturers concentrate on making that one system reliable rather than trying to support all the systems. Because, you know, my smart outlet supports the Amazon stuff, uh, the Google stuff, and HomeKit. It supports all three. And it's hard to support all three, I bet. If they could just support one, that would be way better.
2: Uh, So I also look forward to unification. (laughs) Yeah. and, And hopefully, like, maybe if there's some really good reason why this stuff is so hard to make it reliable today like with the current standards, again, whether it's whether it's like authentication stuff, whether it's networking challenges, whether it's physical things like Wi-Fi radio problems as opposed to, you know, thread or Bluetooth or whatever, Zigbee, all those different things. Fine. Whatever it is, I hope the industry has a good reason why things have been such such crap so far. And that they've fixed that in this newest standard. Because they have experience now. They they have real world experience with all these standards out there, you know, to date. Hopefully now They have figured out, okay, a new standard is required for a good reason, and that good reason is we can make these things good if we had a new standard, and so here it is. If that's the case, I am very much looking forward to it. Uh, I I just, I hope that's the case, because the way it is now is, is kind of embarrassing.
0: I do have to say that even though it hasn't been six months yet, the Lutron Caseta stuff that I've put on the screened-in porch has so far been pretty much bulletproof. And that is smart switches i think they have an outlet um i i believe that to be true but if you're and it's expensive stuff i think each of these smart switches is like easily 50 bucks maybe maybe close to 75 which is a lot for what you're talking about especially since a dumb version of this is like literally two dollars but uh but no it's been working really really well and i have zero complaints so far so you should try that thanks All right, moving right along. Uh, Peter Waller wants to know, I was wondering if you all had seen and have any thoughts on Mighty, a service that streams Google Chrome from the cloud, similarly to Google Stadia or NVIDIA GeForce Now. The service is in beta and is expected to cost $30 a month. That seems like a complicated, crazy, expensive way to get around the, quote, Chrome is too slow, quote, problem. Am I missing something? Uh, No, that's my take, too. I haven't seen I haven't tried any of this I haven't dabbled in it but uh my initial impression is the same thing like this is just to make chrome not suck but tell me gentlemen what is the actual reality here fraud and porn maybe <laughs>
2: <laughs> honestly like, like I, you know if you think of like what are the possible applications for a web browser that's hosted by somebody else for you it's probably you know like leaving fake reviews on stuff like i, I don't know like what what else i mean I'm sure there are legitimate uses for this, but I think there's going to be a lot of crappy uses for it as well. That's like just stuff that we're not thinking of. That's like potential scams you can run. <laughs> that's, I, I don't know. I, I, maybe I'm missing something.
1: I mean, I think this is one of, the, we talked about this when we talked about streaming gaming services. It's one of those sort of eternal dreams of uh, computer slash network architecture uh, at various times is to think that, uh, you know, a thing that people are doing locally that has problems if we could do that remotely we could solve we, we could solve some problems like so let's say you know we can have very powerful computers or we could have computers that are closer to the thing they're trying to talk to or we could have computers that are optimized for this one task or all sorts of things that you can think about doing that you say look when we do it in our data centers we can do it better than you can do it near you and all that we need is the network connection to be, you know, to be robust enough to be lowest, lower, uh, low enough latency, you know, all, all the sort of the qualifiers, it's kind of the similar thing to gaming of like, we can run the games at our data center, you don't have to have expensive video card, we can, you know, have e- economies of scale, because we can share resources when they're not in use, they're not just idle sitting there, like someone else will be using them, right? Uh, remember, net, I don't know if you remember network computing, Sun was super into network computing, like, oh, well, you know, you'll have a thin, a thin client on your end, your network computer and it. You know, won't have a lot of uh, smarts in it. It'll just have enough to talk on the network and the real computing will happen somewhere else. And that's great for us because we make servers and, you know, all sorts of models like this. And every time they've been tried so far, even when the balance of tech seems to make sense on paper, like finally the bandwidth is enough or for certain genres of games, latency is acceptable. uh, They still haven't really caught on uh and i think in the case of this specific scenario of like look people's browsers do bog down and people's computers aren't super powerful and have tons of ram and if you open a lot of tabs in chrome it does you know chug right or it'll kill your battery like there's so many like there's lots of technical reasons why this thing would make sense but the enemy of this approach is just how fast everyone's computers keep getting i mean phones Phones are so phenomenally fast at web browsing now that it's really hard to make the argument that if we do this in our data centers, uh, we can browse, you know, better than you can. Like, it's probably true, like, their computers can be optimized for this task and will have more RAM and can actually be faster, but not faster enough, enough of the time to pay certainly $30 a month for the privilege, right? There's also isolation and security, like all this stuff's happening on our servers, not on your device or whatever. Um, but yeah, and there's still the old, uh, bugbear of, uh, bandwidth and latency. Can you tell that it's not running locally? Maybe it's probably easier to, to fake it out in a web browser as opposed to a game. But what about games you play in the web browser? Uh, what is it? Uh, Microsoft's xCloud things finally allowed quote unquote on Apple devices through their web interface. Like there's lots of reasons why I don't think this deal at thirty dollars a month makes sense for most people and that's why it's probably doomed but people keep trying for this one because on paper there are a lot of advantages and in individual scenarios it can make sense but as a thing that sort of you know has a place in the market like that maybe it's not for everybody but it's it's uh, a firmly established market so far no one has been able to crack this nut whether in gaming or certainly in web browsers or in general computing sun's network computer didn't work out uh you know, the, the rumors of the original iMac were, or is it going to be a set-top box called Columbus that would kind of be like a lightweight network computer the one on your TV? That's not what it turned out to be. It turned out to be the iMac. But lots of companies have had this dream over the years of a small, thin device on your end that connects to our big, powerful server somewhere else, and it'll be great for us because you'll buy the cheap device and we'll charge you per month or whatever. Keep trying, everybody. It will probably work out eventually because it is a good idea, but I don't think this is it.
0: Stop trying to make that happen.
1: No, they need to keep trying to make it happen because it's, <laughs> it is it is a good idea. But this, you know, again, $30 a month so you can have a web browser running elsewhere. When our phones run JavaScript at speeds, you know, uh, unforeseen. Like, you if you if you brought an iPhone back in time, even just a couple of decades and said, like, I'm going to benchmark this, this little magical thing against your most powerful computer, people would be blown away. Like, the web is really fast. On iPhones, anyway, the web is insanely fast on iPhones. Um, still not a lot of RAM. Like there's still advantages to this, and there's always the distance thing. Like how close is your iPhone to the server? We have a you know a thirty gig Ethernet connection to the trunk of the internet, and you're on stupid Wi-Fi. So instead of you sending the entire multi megabyte content of the stupid web page across, you know four G or whatever, we'll do all that over our wired connection and just send you the picture of the page that renders as a result. Like there are advantages, but thirty dollars a month? Nope,
0: no argument here. And then finally friend of the show Brian Hamilton writes, do you think Apple would ever make an M1 card for Intel Mac Pros to enable some of these M1 only Monterey features? I personally don't see that happening, but I don't know. Marco, when you inevitably get your Mac Pro, will it will it be with an M1 card?
2: Not a chance in hell they would ever do this. <laughs> <laughs> I think Apple as I mentioned in the past, like I don't think Apple is looking backward at all on the on this transition. I think they they've moved on like anything else they do for intel in the future if anything is going to be really half budded and only the bare minimum that they need to do i think they're like we've seen these rumors of like possible component updates to the existing mac pro like new cpu and gpu update because they appear to be supported in software that might happen even then i'd kind of be surprised if it happened honestly Uh, because i think apple's head is no longer in the intel world like so to put any unnecessary engineering effort into extending the life of Intel machines with a hardware product that would add an M1 to them? No, no chance.
1: Just to give some historical context for times that this is, either Apple has done this or it has happened to Apple, uh, the original Mac had a a thing, what was it called? It had a great ad where it was like, uh, it was a third-party thing where you basically, it was like an IBM PC that you would slap onto the side of your Mac so it could run IBM PC software. Yep. I mean, what was that called uh, mac charlie maybe um i remember the ads for it very vividly from back in the day uh max had apple II cards in them which made sense for education there was basically like a little an entire apple II on a card that you could add into a mac for schools that needed to run apple II software at the same time uh there were a series of uh basically more modern intel uh computers on a card like a 486 that you could put inside your you know mac uh they they were called like dos compatible right because it basically had a tiny 486 pc on a card inside your mac um i think that's why people even think of this because apple has you know because it has been a thing so many times for various reasons and obviously all the all these times has happened like how many people do you know who'd ever actually even used one of these let alone even knew they existed right um in the case of m1 the only scenario I can see Apple doing this is if something very disastrous happened with the ARM based system on a chip for the Mac Pro. Like, you know, I don't know, the yields were bad or there was a fatal flaw in the design, something that just really terrible happened. And Apple's like, oh, what are we going to do? It's going to take us, you know, an extra two years to come up with an ARM chip for this Mac Pro because the ARM system on a chips are so cheap compared to Xeons, for example. If Apple was in this dire situation, I can imagine them saying, we'll just keep uh, shipping Intel Mac Pros and we'll put an M2 or M1X or whatever on a little card and shove it in there so that people can use it for the functions that it's faster for or something like that. But that would, to be clear, this would be a colossal failure. (laughs) It would not be a plan that Apple's subscribing to. It would be like, something terrible has happened. What can we do? And because the Mac Pro is so horrendously expensive, you can absorb the cost of literally an entire... You know, our M1 based Mac or M2 based Mac on a card—it's nothing compared to the cost of uh, an overall cost of a Mac Pro. Uh, so they could do that, but I haven't heard that they've had any disasters. You know, in my great <laughs> pipeline that I have into the the chips that that <laughs> Apple is working on. So yeah, I don't think this is going to happen.
2: Thanks to our sponsors this week: Squarespace, HelloFresh, and Linode. And thanks to our members who support us directly. You can join. ATP.fm slash join. And uh, that'll work whether you go to HTTP or HTTPS because it'll redirect you. <laughs> and thanks, everybody. We will talk to you next week. Now the show is over. They didn't even mean to begin because it was accidental. accidental. Oh, it was accidental.
0: accidental.
2: John didn't do any research. Marco and Casey wouldn't let him because it was accidental. Acc- It was accidental. Accidental. And you can find the show notes at
1: ATP.FM. And if you're into Twitter,
2: you can follow them at C A S E Y L I S S. So that's Casey Liss, M A R C O A R M E N T Marco Armen S I R. See, USA Syracuse, it's
0: accidental. They didn't mean to. Accidental. Tech podcast, so long. On a completely random note, uh, we took Penny to do day boarding, not not puppy play date, but day boarding today because not this coming weekend, but the weekend following we're going to need to have somebody, not us take care of her for a couple of days as we do uh, wedding stuff for my brother-in-law. And we took her. We were trying to ease her way into things because she, and I presume this is not unusual for any dog, but for her particularly, um, she really doesn't like new stuff at first. And so uh, we took her in day boarded her today and dropped her off at like nine thirty, picked her up at like five thirty, and you know it was I think a little challenging for the people at the day boarder. Like she wasn't mean, but I think she was like very resistant to them and so on and so forth. Um, but seeing a dog who I think genuinely thought you would, you know, I think she thought we would, she would never see us again, even though it was a total of eight hours. Uh, and then we come and pick her up and I've never seen a creature more happy in my entire life than she was when we picked her up <laughs> today. Uh, so funny. Do you guys, you guys never, ever board your dogs, do you? I do. Oh, you do? Okay. So yeah, we you try t- to
1: find places in general that take dogs, but that's not easy. Like So this, you know, we're going uh, down to Long Island at some point this summer and we look for, uh, you know, rental places that would take dogs. But as you can imagine, that is not common. Uh, and so, yeah, but we, but we you know, that's it's good what you're doing, like trial running that or sort of like finding a place that you trust or people that you trust to watch your dog is important and getting your dog used to the idea. Um, the person we board with now is also the person where Daisy goes on her doggy playdates, right? So it's, it's a familiar place where she goes frequently. Um, and she's been boarded there multiple times. Still, you, as you noted, you kind of get the suspicion that the dog doesn't understand and think this is it. I'm never going to see them
2: again, like literally every mm-hmm. time, yep. uh, because you can't explain. I mean, in all fairness, like I think hops has that impression every time we leave <laughs> every the time house. you leave the house, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> house, yeah like yeah, like yeah. every
1: time you leave the room.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like that's I think part of the reason why dogs are so like over the top happy to see you when you get back is that they thought you were gone forever every time you leave
0: yeah,
1: yeah. i wonder about that on the doggy playdates which you know she's been going on for her entire life it's not a mystery like there is some something to be said for routine like they understand that this will come and go but the boarding must be like wait a second this playdates lasting a really long time right <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah. right so but but it, but you know it's having somebody you trust and especially since this person boards dogs and has the playdates like it's it's you know it's her friend group so to speak right that she's mm-hmm. familiar with smells and places that she's familiar with. So it's the best you can do. It's not as good as being home and with your people all the time, but sometimes that can't always happen.
0: Yeah. And it, it's funny as I was digging into this, you know, because we got a recommendation from some really good friends of ours that have a couple of Westies, but, um, you know, as I'm digging into this, just kind of seeing what, what's available, um, you know, there's, there's everything from like a place nearby, not the place we went, but a place nearby has like Uh, Different level. Oh, so many of these borders or kennels, whatever you call them, have you know different levels. And there's the like you know steerage plan all the way through. And this one particular place near us has the presidential suites where they have chandeliers (laughs) and elevated beds and things of that nature.
2: That's awesome. Well,
0: it's awesome, but it's this like. So before I became a dog owner this is like you know before I became a parent same story right before I became a dog owner I swear I would not be that dog owner that is like Fru-Fru will only have the best of the best you know Fru-Fru will always have an elevated bed and chandeliers in her in her kennel like it's a freaking dog guys like come on um and so I, I don't I don't absolutely love the place we took her because it's basically a cement box that she was in um but but I it's going to have to suffice for the next, you know, for well we're going to do an overnight next week, a single overnight next week and then next weekend is, you know, with I think it's two or three nights that she's going to be gone. And then we'll see if we stick with it or not, but um the people there are super nice and she seemed no worse for wear when we picked her up. Um but it's just it's funny the the level that that these these places will go and and how over the top and preposterous it is for an animal that I think really just does not know any better. Oh, uh, well, I mean
2: they, there are there. Are, it's it's complicated. Like so, for one thing, like you know, they they do know to a degree. You know that that's that's part of it. Um, but also, they pick up so much on the humans' reactions and and emotions about things. Like mm-hmm. if the human is dropping them off and and has the clear emotions, like this is a good thing, this is going to be great, it will put the dog more at ease. The dog, you know, once the dog figures out that they're being left behind, they're not going to be happy about it. But it's it's better to be left behind, like at a slightly more positive emotional state from the human, yeah, yeah, yeah. than than like the human being super upset and nervous about it, you know, because then the dog will pick up on that. Um, but also, I you know, I, I'm I'm a sucker for this. Like, I was the same kind of person. Like, I'm not gonna like be one of those over the top dog parents, but of course, I, I mostly am because I love my dog, and and it, like one thing I, I i I've heard this from a couple places I forget the origin, but um two things two things to know. Number one is the perspective of like your dog is part of your world. you are your your dog's entire world like it, it's an asymmetric relationship. Mm. you go off to work well if any of us had jobs, but you know like <laughs> you go off to work <laughs> and you know like you you go out you have a whole world around you, your dog is one part of your world. But, like, yeah, but to your dog, like, you are the entire world. Like, they, they're, it's just all about you. So, that's, that's one thing to be, you know, conscious of. Sure. Um, And the the other thing that, that I, I I forget where I heard this as well. It was so good. Um, But it, something along along the lines of, like, you know, somebody was, like, filling up their dog's water bowl. And they were using the the filtered water. And someone else asked, why do you use filtered water? Because, you know, the dog doesn't care or doesn't know. And the guy said... Because he would do the same for me.
0: That's adorable. Right. And like, cause like
2: like, to your dog, like, you're God, like, you know, your dog loves you so much. So, like, I feel like that the combination of those two things, like, it makes you want to do nice things for your dog, even if it probably doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. Even if dogs, like, theoretically shouldn't or can't know or care about the difference between, you know, the crappy option and the good option. You just want to do good stuff for your dog because your dog is so awesome to you. Your dog would eat you, though. So there's that. <laughs> <laughs> my dog, really? Your
1: you died you die in your house, and your dog is there, and no one's feeding it. You're eventually gonna eat it. I mean, the dog might be sad while it's <laughs> eating you, but your dog will eat you. Oh my god.
0: Oh god. <laughs>